0: Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast, hosted by three friends who were brought together by their heroin-addicted partners. We became each other's biggest support through some of life's toughest times.
1: We're not licensed professionals, and nothing in this conversation is professional advice. But we hope our stories offer a glimpse into how these issues weave into our everyday lives. You're not alone. We can all get through it together.
2: If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining our virtual support group. For details, visit us at Recovering2.com. We know what you're going through and we're here to help. We're Recovering 2. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We cannot tell you how excited we are to have our guest today, uh, Justin Phillips, who is the executive director and founder to Overdose Lifeline. So we are so excited for her to share her story and learn about Overdose Lifeline as well. So welcome, Justin. Welcome. Thanks for thank joining you. us.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be here with you.
2: Yeah, Perfect. Awesome. Well, so um, we all have kind of known you in different fashions and you are a name that is in our community in Indiana. Um, but would you mind telling us kind of how you started um, kind of in this
3: space, um, maybe the story about your son? Sure, yeah. So it's, it's a, um, a bit of something I like to refer to as an imperfect storm of, of circumstances because I have been in recovery myself from primarily alcohol misuse since 1989. And so I thought I knew all about substance use disorder and um, the warnings that I continuously provided to my children about the genetics behind, you know, substance use disorder and, And then I worked in the public health space around the prevention of unintentional injury and death to children, primarily under the age of 14. So I did work around proper car seat usage and wearing your seatbelt and having a smoke detector, right? So when Aaron, my middle child, um, acknowledged that he was using heroin and didn't know how to stop on his own and had tried and needed some help, uh, I, I did not understand heroin and I didn't understand opioids. I knew it was this big bad thing we didn't talk about, right? Heroin was the drug no one would ever do, right? It was the one thing we, t- we said. And, and Aaron, to his credit, had parents who were in recovery before he was born. So had been raised knowing recovery was a thing and had shared with me even in that conversation you know, you and dad have showed me that recovery is possible and that's what I want. And I think that that is what he meant. And, but in 2012, nobody understood really opioids, I think, to the degree that we do now and how to treat opioid use disorder in the same way. And, and so um, we did our best um, with the tools that we had at the time, I like to say. And, and um, unfortunately in 2013, Aaron, chose to use again and lost his life in October to an overdose. And so um, at that same time, a recent law had been amended to allow for first responders, primary police, to use the overdose reversal drug naloxone, which some people know as Narcan, the brand name. And so for some reason, I had these... um, Staff or these colleagues, these work colleagues, who thought I should go with them to this meeting that the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department was holding around that heroin was becoming a problem and we needed to do something. And so at this meeting, I learned about naloxone and this thing that could have saved Aaron. And I learned, you know, a a little bit more about the enormity of the problem. So because I had this sort of public health background, this problem-solving personality, um, I needed to do something. And I had done some nonprofit um, education as well and worked in nonprofit. It just sort of was this natural sort of place for me to just go put my grief. And so we started Overdose Lifeline in um, in 2014, which was really quick after Aaron died, honestly. Yeah,
0: that's- Thanks for sharing that story.
1: Yeah. Um, You mentioned, you know, around that time, there was just not a lot known about heroin and people didn't really talk about it. And it was this, nobody does that. Um, So how did you handle like the stigma or once Aaron passed and you started this nonprofit, like going and, and talking about this with people? Was that a, an issue for you? Or I guess, how did you handle the stigma part?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. And I think it speaks to, you know, why this podcast is necessary is because I knew really early on that one of the, the mistakes, and I don't mean that to beat myself up, but one of the things that I think contributed to Aaron dying is the denial that we wrap ourselves in as a protective blanket because we don't know what to do. And it interferes, right? And stigma and shame is a real thing. And so those two combinations, I just knew from the beginning, mm, I'm gonna have to talk about it. I'm gonna have to tell this story because that was something I should have done and I didn't. So I got to make a change for others. and. Um, at the time, Matthew Tully was a journalist at the Indie Star. I don't know if you remember Matthew Tully. Um, he subsequently has lost his life to cancer, but he had started doing these stories in the Indie Star about heroin. So I reached out to him and I asked him to help me tell Aaron's story. And, and we did that really as a way to, I did that really as a way to give other people permission to, to not be alone um and and that really did really i heard from so many people that said you know your story is my story and just um being able to share right which is what you're doing right not feeling alone Mm -hmm. yes that does make a big difference and it continues to exist right i mean i think every time i tell aaron's story i am aware that someone in the audience will judge me as a parent as a person in recovery, right? How could you be in recovery for so long and not save your kid, all that stuff. But I just say, oh, oh, oh well, cause I, the need to help others not feel alone is greater than than my fear of your judgment anymore.
2: So may I ask as as a mom and, and your, Aaron came out to you about this, were you kind of like, oh shit? Like, was it everyone on deck to help? Um, kind of what was, what was that conversation?
3: Yeah, no, you know, that's hard because, um, the truth is no, right. Um, yes and no. Um, and so sometimes what I like to say is that had Aaron been diagnosed with a different disease, I would have handled it differently. So he asked for help. We, um, made some pretty quick decisions about where to send him. Um, I didn't do all this due diligence research for the best doctor, right? Very fear-based reaction a bit, right? Because I didn't know, and I was afraid, and and, um, uh, I'm trying to think, yeah. So, and he, I remember, um, he asked to go use again um, before we took him to treatment, which is, was a very scary thing for me. And and I didn't know then what I know now about really the dangers of dying so swiftly. Um, and, and, but we let him, we did let him do that. Um, because I feared not letting him do that, that he wouldn't choose to go, Mm -hmm. but I let someone else take him to treatment and I went to work, um, which I would never have done had it been a different disease. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then subsequently through that next, you know, 60 days, um, at treatment, some of the decisions that came afterwards that people still face, right. The lack of really supportive resources. Once you leave that protective treatment environment, again, um, the death sentence wasn't as real as I wished I would have been allowed myself to face so that I would have sw- changed my priorities, right? You still got to work, but do do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah.
0: absolutely. We struggle a lot. I mean, we've, the three of us have discussed a lot, the, the balance of, you know, not overreacting and making it our whole life Mm -hmm. at the same time, understanding though, that this is really a life or death thing happening. And so like we balance with like, how do we, you know, how do we act appropriately, but not make it our entire existence, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, it is our loved one's choice. So I think that's a delicate balance. And I'm, I'm not sure that I I know that I have done, the, done the things that you're saying, you know, my spouse being, um, out in active addiction and I go to work because what can I do you know and so I don't I don't I understand and I, I do think of it as a different disease sometimes And I, I know that there was one time um, Elise was spending the night with me and, and my uh, husband was on like a using uh, he left I kicked him out because he was using and she just kept asking me like well how are you like showing him compassion right now and I was just like well I'm just thinking of this as like he has a different disease. And what would I do in that regard? But you know, that's really hard to do when it's just a really difficult situation. I don't think anyone, it's not a natural instinct to know what to do.
3: No, it's a very, it's so difficult because all the behavior that comes with this disease is illogical and harmful to people that love and care about the individual. And, And it is their choice but it's also the disease causing the choice. It's, it's almost impossible, honestly, right. it's, it's right. almost impossible.
1: And they are not thinking rationally. So it's like, you know, on one hand, it's like, well, you can't force somebody into treatment. But then on the other hand, you're like, they're not even thinking clearly, make this decision to go to mm-hmm. treatment. And if I don't force it, like the potential outcome is horrific, So then it's like this weird balance of, you know, because also if you force someone into treatment and maybe they're not ready or like not wanting to be there, that doesn't work. And it's just so complicated.
3: It's very complicated. And um, one of the things that you don't know as much about me because I don't share it as much because it's not as relevant is that I have a sister who also suffers.
2: Mm -hmm. And I
3: sat with her in the emergency room one time after she had taken entirely too many hydrocodone and was overdosing right and basically i might have gotten myself kicked out because i was a little too vocal (laughs) with the staff but because they couldn't hold her because she wasn't a danger to herself or others but she was a danger to herself it's Mm -hmm. not the true definition of suicide right you're not admitting that you want to harm yourself but but she was harming herself and she could have died and they wouldn't hold her, right? And yes. some of that is so hard because we do maybe need them to, to put, be, be putting these involuntary holds. But at the same time, as you said, Liz, it could backfire, right? And they could, um, then we become the enemy. It's a hard place to be. Yeah, it is. It That whole, like that you were saying, made me think about The number
1: of people who overdose or then are saved hopefully by Narcan or something and you know maybe they go to the hospital for like two hours this happened to Jake um in 2019 like Narcan literally saved his life he was taken to the hospital and then within like two hours was released with no like follow-up care or next steps and you just think like if somebody ends up in the hospital with a heart attack or like something with diabetes, like, you know, other professionals come in and there's a care plan given and follow. Mm -hmm. it feels like that is um, definitely missing in this world.
3: No, you're right. It's true. We don't treat it like we treat other chronic diseases for certain.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And I think that has to do with insurance and all those other beasts that are way bigger than we are, but we can keep talking about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like I mentioned,
0: oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask another question. So if you have a topic on or a comment on that topic, we can. No, go. it was okay. another question. You go first. Um, so I, I don't know if you know, Justin, but, um, Elisa and I have young children with our recovering spouses. Um, and you mentioned how in your home, you know, with you and your husband being in recovery, you kind of talked to them about the, um, the genetic component of addiction and kind of warned them that this is something to look out for, which opened up this conversation for, it allowed your, your son to come to you, right. And felt comfortable with that. That's something that I think about too. I mean, my son is 10 months old, but, but knowing that, (laughs) knowing that, um, you know, eventually that, you know my we have addiction in my family and my mom had always kind of warned us as well and i think it really stuck with me you know um but i would just wonder kind of what what do what advice would you give us this is not i want to jump into the overdose lifeline but this is just a unique perspective that you have that we haven't really shared we had anyone to talk to you about this? Like, what advice would you give us with young kids and others that have young children in the home that are kind of maybe witnessing active addiction? And how did how would you recommend like having those conversations?
3: Yeah, I think it's a good good question, um, Alex, and also a hard hard not perfect answer. But I do think that um, if 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 so I would f- fight with Aaron about it as he became an adolescent and was experimenting with marijuana. And, and, but we didn't talk about it as much as he was growing up, as any of them were growing up, right? It was this thing that we did. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, you know, some people who drag their kids to um, 12-step recovery meetings from the beginning of their life. And I don't really know, you know, if that's the best solution. Um, I used to hear, you know, all the best drugs were in Allatine, so I never really wanted the kids to go to Allatine, right? So you just don't know. But instead, I think we should talk about it with them the way we would talk about that, you know, heart disease runs in the family. That you that this is a real thing. That we have this one genetic component, and that you have to be aware. Um, Mm -hmm. But also knowing, you know, sometimes as adolescents developmentally, they're going to have to try to find their way and experiment. And I think the piece when we talk about harm reduction approaches, and when I talk to families about having access to naloxone in the home, Mm -hmm. I think relates to this a little bit. Because when we are so afraid that we fight with the person we love that's misusing, instead of saying, I don't want you to use, but I don't want you to die, so I have naloxone, the dynamic changes, right? So if we're always just talking openly and honestly, and even expressing, I have fear for you to experiment because of this genetic component, but it's not perfect at all,
2: right? right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I will say with my um so I have a one and a 4 year old and mm-hmm. so we have a home security system and you know I've had those like other people have asked me like what if your husband overdoses and dies in the care while while caring for your children you know XYZ and so I've had to have those conversations with my 4 year old if you cannot wake daddy up if you cannot wake mommy up you hit that red button and police will come and they will help you um <sighs> and so, you know, that's, you know, is that conversations that my other friends are having with their kids? Probably not. Um, and you know, we have two, um, two Narcan shots in our home. Now I think my four-year-old is still too little, but I do, Mm -hmm. you know, at some age, I want to let her know Mm -hmm. because, um, and I think we'll, hopefully we'll jump into this here, but like, even if for some reason, my husband is unresponsive and somehow I've already taught her, like, shoot that up his nose, like it's not going to hurt daddy. Right. You know, it, even if it, that's not even the case, <laughs> even if he's just like knocked out of sleep for whatever reason, like it won't hurt him. Like she needs to push the red button, get the police here. And so maybe when she's older, I hope we never get in that situation. But unfortunately, those are just conversations that
3: we have to have because this is something that will never go away out of our lives. And it's better to have the conversations than to pretend and think that you're shielding them from the reality because I don't think that we are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I did a pretty good job of shielding Audrey, for example, Aaron's youngest sister, because she was seven and a half years younger than Aaron, but i I have no doubt I didn't shield her completely because even if I thought I was handling it all, we all know, right, that it was <laughs> oozing out in other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So can you tell us about the creation of Overdose Lifeline, like how you got that started and kind of the history
3: of your organization and where you're at today? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, um, I learned about naloxone and I learned also that we weren't really no one really understood opioids and heroin. I didn't know that hydrocodone, which is like a thing you get prescribed pretty regularly as Tylenol-3 was actually the same chemical compound as heroin, right? We didn't know any Mm -hmm. of that. So it just felt like something I needed to do. So we started Overdose Lifeline really and the the thing that we started with was um, that the law had passed for first responders to have naloxone like the police but they didn't really have the budgets for it. So that was like an initial thing I could go do was I could start this nonprofit and raise money to give um, police departments money for their naloxone. Uh, And we started that with really small grants. Um, I think actually Hancock County Sheriff might've been our first uh, mini grant for um, naloxone. And then the other thing was that we didn't have really a good education program for youth around opioids. And that was kind of my background as well, that I did you know, these sort of grassroots initiatives around injury prevention. Um, and so we started developing the program that we still use um, in about 30 other states across the country called This Is Not About Drugs. And it's a program that really is just intended to tell adolescents hey, there's this prescription that you may get legitimately for lots of reasons, including wisdom teeth extraction. And it's mm-hmm. also really dangerous. And, um, and then we started talking, people would ask us to come talk about opioids. Um, and so that's kind of how our education programming developed. Uh, But then the other thing that we started on almost immediately was access to naloxone. So when Aaron died, um, it required a prescription for you to get naloxone at the pharmacy. Uh, And it required really, um, as most prescriptions do, that you have to be the person that needs the drug, right? So illegal for me to get the drug and then give it to you. Uh, It's not like anyone reinforces that, but it's still not uh, is illegal so we worked on passing what it, uh, we know as Aaron's law in um, that was in 2015 so that was pretty early on too and Aaron's law makes it so that you can go to any pharmacy in the state of Indiana and get naloxone over the counter without a prescription um, and people can distribute naloxone like overdose Lifeline does distribution of naloxone and a lot of people do distribution of naloxone in Indiana and yeah we just kind of kept building on filling the gaps, what was needed. So we continue to do that. We've grown so much. We have nine staff, which is, this is some kind of weird thing, honestly. Yeah,
1: that's amazing. Um, Well, I know that I'm grateful to Aaron's Law and the work that you're doing. And I mean, it has benefited all three of us at some point. We all have Narcan in our homes and you know hopefully don't have to use it but it is it is gives some peace of mind to know that it is there if you need it. Um, kind of touched on this a little bit um, but I'm wondering how you would respond to people who maybe don't understand like the idea of harm reduction or who think like oh well if you're just going to have Narcan on hand like that's kind of encouraging their use to continue like I was wondering if you could speak to that idea at all.
3: Sure Um, so the first thing I try to do when I talk about harm reduction is help people understand it's actually a public health policy and a proven approach to a lot of different things in the public health space Uh, And its basic premise is that it's reducing the harms of legal and non-legal behaviors. So we have harm reduction when we wear a seatbelt in our car. And it's not permission to drive recklessly. It reduces the harm should something go wrong with a legal behavior of driving. Right, um, We have harm reduction when we wear sunscreen. We have harm reduction when we wear bike helmets. Um, we have more controversial forms of harm reduction like condoms, right? But they're all things that we use that are public health policy related. And so um, when we talk about opioids, we have other lots of harm reduction, um, which includes um, syringe exchange programs and medication like um, methadone and suboxone um, and naloxone. And they're not, they're just reducing the harm. They're not intended to do anything else in hopes that we can move that person to recovery. And I will say no one gets to recovery if they're not alive. Mm-hmm. So we got to keep them alive first. And it's not permission to use. And anyone with Opioid use disorder or some other substance use disorder will tell you just because naloxone is available doesn't mean I'm gonna go use more. It's not the logic of the disease. <laughs>
1: no.
3: Um, and and you know, we don't um people that have um you know certain types of other chronic diseases like heart disease and type 2 diabetes can get better with a change in their behavior. And they don't always change their behavior to get better. And we don't judge them in the same way that we would judge. We would never tell someone you've had your third heart attack because you won't alter your diet. So we're not saving you anymore. But we some have across this country, right? People have said, "Oh, you can only save them three times with naloxone, and then we're not going to save them anymore. And it's yeah. just not so
2: um, amazing the Aaron's Law thing, like that's amazing. And so, you're it seems like you're primarily focused in Indiana, but like we have people who listen to us from across the country. Like, can we get Overdose Lifeline, or what resources can people kind of across the
3: country have to this life-saving drug? So I believe now at this point, every single state has a law similar to Aaron's Law. Um, And so there should be access to Naloxone without any barriers like a prescription anymore. And depending on the state and how they set up their resources, health departments are good, often um, resources for accessing reduced Naloxone or organizations that address harm reduction. There's quite a few.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of like the country or, and maybe we can start with Indiana and then wider. Um, I guess what would you hope to see next or what direction would you like to see Indiana moving in or the country as a whole as it relates to substance use disorder? Yeah.
3: So we need to do better as it relates to harm reduction stuff, right? Um, And, so one simple thing is that the possession of a syringe, which is something a lot of people who use heroin specifically use for their drug use, right? Um, and um, it's a felony if you have a syringe with any drugs in, it in the state of Indiana and probably other states too. If I am, you know, 17 years old, and my brain isn't fully developed, and I haven't even really started my life, and now I have a felony charge, it's really gonna harm my ability to rent, to get student loans, you know, all of those things. And if it's a chronic disease, then we should treat it that way across the board, and possession of a syringe should not be a thing. Yeah, it's a felony. So that's a small thing we can do in Indiana. Um, We still, um, you know, we don't respect the profession of people who treat this disease uh, um, the same way we respect other specialized professions, and so we don't have enough people to really, we don't have enough addiction psychiatrists, we used to only have like less than 10, it might be better now, but we don't, and so we could improve on that, right, there's no incentive, unless it's your heart to go into this profession, it's, you're not mm-hmm. gonna make money, right? Yeah. Um, but but it's a specialized disease that takes really good care. Um, and I think we need to do better about recognizing that the family is affected drastically um, and we don't do enough to support the family and help the family get better too because, Unfortunately, we fall into patterns as a family member that maybe aren't healthy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and aren't contributing to wellness and recovery, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're all guilty of that. Well, I mean, me <laughs> too. To I wasn't going to yeah. call anyone
3: out, but me too. I mean, yeah. it's hard not to because oh, yeah. it's so, you, you love this person mm-hmm. and you're mad yeah. at them at the same time. Exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah. There are certain programs that um, Overdose Lifeline is doing for for families specifically or family support? We are.
3: So um, the family piece was always something that I knew was missing and uh, something that I wanted to make sure that we could address eventually. I learned about this program called CRAFT which is community reinforcement and family training. It's not the greatest name. Uh, It comes from a psychologist. His name is Robert Myers and he studied um, substance use disorder and the family and developed this um, evidence-based model to help um, family members communicate appropriately, not enable, set boundaries and take care of themselves so that no matter what happens with your loved one, that you will be okay. Um, and so we were um, so lucky to get some funding from the State Division of Mental Health and Addiction in 20, uh I forget what year it is sometimes, 19, um, to bring craft to Indiana. And so we train facilitators now to deliver craft in, in, in groups. So, so, you know, no disrespect to other programs like 12-step recovery programs for families, but not, that doesn't always work for everyone. And I would say with opioid use disorder, that um, first of all, I don't know about you ladies, but detachment with love is really freaking hard. I never could really quite understand the concept, right? And kick them out and let them hit their bottom. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but they're gonna die with opioids. So how do I do that? And so um, craft has a a bit of a different approach. And so it's another option for families. We train facilitators. We um, help support facilitators run groups um, we did that, we now have trained about 50 in Indiana and there's a handful of groups running around the state. And because of the pandemic, you know, the groups are running uh, virtually, which is helpful for some. Um, hopefully we get back to face-to-face someday. Yes. And, and now we're training other people in other states. So when you ask the question about other states, um, Elise, you know, I, I would want your listeners to know we have all, all of these um, opportunities to learn more and to shore up knowledge and resources in our continuing education. And we do have um, craft training. We just trained an amazing group of um, folks in North Dakota and South Dakota oh,
2: and some wow. of the that's tribal awesome. nations
3: to, to facilitate amazing. craft in their community. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's really cool.
0: really cool. yeah we just a little bit about craft we actually just um recorded an episode with another uh gal and she was um she uses craft as well to train um her clients and you know it's so funny i feel like that the three of us have been super involved as family members and never heard of this mm-hmm. and um it's just I it's something I want to learn more about and take the course and so um just to kind of help myself but then also just through the podcast um what kind of do you feel that like you know is there a certain place that if you that you would like encourage people to go to to get with groups using this kind of philosophy versus the um, maybe the more traditional 12-step approach? Or, I mean, I guess, where do you find people who are using CRAFT?
3: <laughs> yeah, so um, I think that the best place to find people using CRAFT is on the Overdose Lifeline website. Cool. We have a link to um, the groups that are running. So we don't post the link itself because of you know the challenge that we initially had early in pandemic with Zoom bombers and appropriately- oh, <laughs> Showing up. <laughs> and so we just um, post the contact person. Um, and anytime we have, um, you know, a staff person at Overdose Lifeline that manages the craft program. And we have some craft trainings coming up. And the training, because of our funding from the state of Indiana, is free. So people that want to in Indiana, it's free if you want to get trained in craft, whether you decide you're going to facilitate a group or not. Um, That's available as well as where who is holding groups, Um, I believe the one group that I know of that is the biggest and largest is running on Wednesday nights. Mm,
1: That's
2: cool.
1: Yeah. And that website is overdose lifeline.org will include it in our notes and everything, but that is a really great resource.
0: There was one other resource on your website that I noticed that I'd like to spend a little time talking about, but could you talk to us about the uh, opioid training courses and what's available with those?
3: Yes, so um, we we started with going around talking about um, the opioid public health crisis and helping everyone understand how we got to this place. Um, because we got to this place because we overprescribed pain medication. We were led to believe it was non-addictive. We made pain a vital sign, right, all these things. And, and instead of judging, right, we wanted to normalize again and help under, everyone understand. A lot of people fell into opioid use disorder that never would have had a substance use disorder problem, honestly, I believe, because of the highly addictive nature of the medication itself. And as we started doing that, we built the course so that it could be something you could go take, Alex, in your community and deliver on your own without us, right? So turnkey stuff so that we, because we were just like three people at the time and we couldn't be everywhere. And so then um, we were given this opportunity to develop a certificate um the Employers Forum of Indiana came to us and asked us to help do that because we recognize that a lot of um you know addiction isn't really something you learn about as an oral surgeon really um and but they needed it right and so we built these courses Um, based on the greatest topics. So there's a course on medication for opioid use disorder, otherwise known as MAT. There's a course on harm reduction. There's a course on substance use disorder and treatment. There's a course on shame and stigma. And so each course kind of goes deeper into the topics. And the courses are available um, for almost every single CEU or continuing education unit for non-clinicians and clinicians, as well as if you take all of them, it's a 20-hour certificate. And those are all those um, continuing education units and the certificate come through Purdue School of Pharmacy.
2: Uh,
1: The work you guys are doing is just so impressive.
3: Thank you. It's, it's a, a it's a, it's a, a, um, a power greater than me, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just here. Mm-hmm. Well, Very good cool. thing that you're here to move that along and work on it. So. Yeah. Thank you. Well, not,
2: and I think too, like you were just an, a mom in pain trying to, to help, you know, wishing you could help your son, hoping that another mom would never have to go through what For I sure. assume, what a, another mom would never have to go through. Like to imagine losing my child to something that maybe I could have helped with, like just seems so awful to even think about. So, you know, like you said, you have nine staff now, like it just started with you and an idea and it just kind of, kept getting bigger. And so now you have this thing. I I just, I, it's, it's wonderful. And I'm just so excited that one, we have you on and one that you're in Indiana with us. Um, you were actually the first person to give me my first Narcan. Like I, yeah. So like you were the first person to give it. So it's just, it's so wonderful. Um, I'm kind of like a rah-rah kind of girl. So like I'm like I'm excited I'm just really excited to have you
3: on that you agreed to come with us today. Oh uh, yeah, thanks. I'm glad to know that. Um, Elise, cause it's those little stories, right, that continue to help. Um, because I don't want anyone else to die, right? And lots of other people have had to die and I cannot stand it. Like it's really still really bad. Yeah. So we just, you know, so on the flip side of that, right, not to get off your question topics, but I do want to say that we do have a support group for people who have lost because that's important too. And we have... And that's every third Monday of the month. And that's on our website. It's called Lifeline for Loss. And we also have Overdose Awareness Day um, in August, which is an internationally celebrated day. And we've been doing that since 2014. uh, And it's gotten bigger and fancier. Um, The State Museum has been gracious enough to let us come there. Um, But it's really about not forgetting those beautiful people that aren't here. And really Mm -hmm. embracing those families who just need a place to put their grief. Yeah,
0: It's amazing. Thank you for all the work you do. I mean, I just don't know if you get that enough, but um, it's just, yeah, like, like, like Liz has said, you know, I think all of our spouses have been saved by this drug at one point. So um, I'm super grateful for it. And I just, it's just really cool. So Mm
3: -hmm.
0: just can't thank you enough.
3: Well, well as I'm we glad have, they were saved. Yes. As we
1: wrap up, are there um, any closing you wanna leave with the audience or things to look forward to of what's coming up next with Overdose
3: Lifeline,
1: anything you wanna share?
3: So if we could quickly just share that we're starting a camp. So I oh. don't know if you ladies saw that on the website. No. Um, but there's a national model that comes out of the ALUNA network. And it's for kids ages nine to 12 who have been affected by substance use disorder in their family. And um, so we are going to be Camp Mariposa. It's called Camp Mariposa across the country will be the 13th site um, here starting in May. And it's for kids that are, as I said, nine to 12. So if any of the listeners um, you know, if that fits their criteria or they want to learn more, the application is on the website and um, we're, we're just really excited to be launching that camp because the kids, right? Yeah. The, family, the kids are also really forgotten and need so mm-hmm. much support and especially now after all this pandemic is just not, the kids are not doing well, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. yeah that's, well, that's amazing. exciting super exciting and that's
3: exciting you know, i know
0: you shared if you need yeah. camp counselors i think we're <laughs>
3: yeah right <laughs> yeah we we actually part of the model is that the kids are paired with a mentor that's and awesome. so okay. um the mentor application is on the website too yep and we're awesome. looking for a nurse if there's any nurses out there we have to have a nurse <laughs> So it's a, it's a, and and the model is a little different than regular camp, which is the beauty of it is because it's not like come to camp for a week and then see you. It's actually every other month, the kids come to camp Friday to Sunday and there's a lot of therapeutic involvement as well as fun camp stuff and then the off months of camp is a family engaged therapeutic activity as well so we're staying connected to the child and the family for a whole year and then of course they're welcome to come back again after that wow that's love that idea
2: that's great super cool it's exciting so you said that's not only in indiana but that is across the country so it's okay yep it's called camp mariposa that's amazing very cool yeah Wow. Awesome. Well, Justin, it was so phenomenal to talk to you and yes, I mean, we would love to probably have you on again because your knowledge is just infinite. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but thank you and, uh, everybody please keep coming back. Thanks for tuning in to boy problems podcast. If you enjoyed today's discussion, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this episode. Find us on social media, and if you have questions or ideas for topics, email us at hello at boyproblemspod.com.